Wonderful. Again, just let me say how, how much of a joy it is for us as a family to be with you. We so greatly value our partnership with you in the gospel and your support and prayers for us as a family. And I love coming back to Claygate. I love to see everybody. And please do come and chat to me in the brief time between this service and the next service that I'm preaching at. I'd love to renew acquaintances. Um, as I said in my interview, I, I'm the director for mobilization and media, which sounds like a very grand title. I've been spending a lot of time these last few weeks revising job descriptions for people who are working for us around the country. Um, our head of human resources helps me with that, fortunately, and she tells me that job descriptions need to be in two parts. I don't know what you think about that, but they need to be in two parts. The first part describes the role and the responsibilities. And that bit I understand. But the second part is what she calls a person specification. A person specification. And it lists things like education and experience and the abilities and the character and all this sort of area. The kind of person that you say is eligible to apply. And that got me thinking as I look at this passage in, in, uh, in Matthew's Gospel. I wonder if Jesus had a person's specification for his disciples. I wonder if he had a person specification. What sort of person was Jesus looking for to be one of the 12, one of the disciples? I wonder if we sat down and made some notes about the kind of person that were we in Jesus' shoes, we would have looked for. What would you look for? What, what sort of experience or, or character or personality or, or skills? What was it that you wanted from this group of 12 people? This morning we've read about the call of one of those 12, the call of Matthew. Matthew, who wrote the gospel that we've read. So the call of the author of the gospel we've just read, that's what we looked at this morning. Matthew is perhaps the seventh or the eighth of the, twelfth, of the twelve to be called. And there's a lot of detail in the Gospels about the different disciples that were called. Not as much as I would like. I'd quite like to know a lot more about them and their background. But there, is, there are some details there. And I find John's Gospel very helpful in thinking about the first disciples. John doesn't give lists the way the Matthew, Mark, and Luke does. But he does talk about... A little bit gives a little bit more background, I think, to some of the early disciples. So you discover, for instance, that the very first disciples that Jesus chose were already disciples of John the Baptist. Andrew and one other, John says. Probably John. He's quite humble about that. Andrew. Andrew was one of John the Baptist's disciples. And John pointed him to Jesus. So he was already a disciple. And Andrew went and found his brother. Simon, Peter, who also came and followed. And then Jesus found Philip in the same passage in John 2. And Philip immediately went and found Nathaniel, a friend of his. And when Jesus met Nathaniel, who is often called Bartholomew, Jesus described Nathaniel as a true Israelite. Jesus seemed to foreknow him, a true Israelite. And here's Philip, who knew his scriptures well. These things become clear in John chapter 2. Some of these disciples may well have been humble fishermen, but clearly many of them had at least some religious interest. 
Some had been disciples of John the Baptist. Others knew their scriptures. They were waiting for Messiah to come. Even the other Simon, who we call the Zealot, and probably Judas Iscariot, these men were political zealots, people who were, who were longing for the establishment of God's kingdom and throwing off Roman rule. That's the kind of people that Jesus was calling. But you know, when you come to Matthew, I think we're looking at somebody in a totally different category. Matthew was Jewish. He's called Levi in one of the other accounts. And his description of himself is one who collects taxes, sitting in the tax collector's booth. The word often used is, is a publican, one who worked. He was a civil servant for the Romans, effectively. Apologies to any civil servants present. He was a civil servant for the Romans, the hated, dreaded, occupying power. Matthew the Jew was working for the Romans. In first century Palestine, the tax collector was utterly despised. Now, I know they're not so popular in 21st century Britain. I did a quick Google search about least popular professions. And tax collector, I'm sorry if you are one, you are up there along with bankers, politicians, estate agents, and traffic wardens. These are the least liked professions. But they're necessary, aren't they, tax collectors? But in first century Palestine, they were loathed and detested by the Jews because you were working for the enemy, the occupying power. You look at the story of Zacchaeus, which is often well known. He was a tax collector as well, and he was wealthy, and he was utterly corrupt, and he's stolen and extorted money from his own people, the Jews. Everyone hated them. They were seen by the Jews as collaborators. They were social pariahs. They were despised. They were religiously unclean. They were politically suspect. And they were socially beyond the pale. You would not associate with a tax collector. In other words, you would think they were totally the wrong sort of person for Jesus to invite to be one of the disciples. The wrong sort. On Jesus' job description, things like able to get on with the occupying power, good with money, able to give financial advice did not appear. Why then? Why did Jesus call Matthew? He's not got this lovely religious background. He's not been a disciple of John. He's a despised tax collector. What sort of people does Jesus call? Let's think a little bit more about Matthew. Now, I don't want to go into this whole attempt to try and get inside Matthew and, and discover things that, we, that aren't there in the Scriptures. We aren't privileged to know any more, really, about his circumstances. But we don't really understand why he worked for Rome. We don't know how he reconciled being a Jew and working for the Romans. But one thing we do know is that he probably spent most of his adult life despised by his countrymen, rejected, humiliated, scorned, and avoided. One of the least popular people within Jewish society. And then one day, this Jewish rabbi 
who's becoming quite well known as a healer and quite well respected as a teacher walks past his toll booth. This Jesus turns and looks at Matthew and says, follow me. And I think suddenly Matthew sees a lifeline being thrown to him. Matthew sees a lifeline because this Jesus is effectively saying to the despised, rejected Matthew, I don't care what people say you are. I don't care what you have done. I don't care about all your past. I am your future. Now follow me. What sort of people does Jesus call? Jesus himself explains his choice in verse 12 and 13 of the passage we read. We might say Jesus' person specification is this, the sick and the sinner. The sick and the sinner. This is who Jesus says he's come to call to follow him. Not the righteous, not the healthy, not the proud, the significant, the leaders, the movers and shakers, those who seem in the world's eyes to be influential. No. Jesus has come to call the sick and the sinner. Those who know themselves to be in need of a healer, in need of a savior. That's who he's come to call. And the truth of the matter is, when Jesus says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick, he's actually saying something quite profound to us all. In biblical terms, as this relates to spiritual health, sickness afflicts every one of us. In actual fact, there are no healthy people. When Jesus says, I've not come to call the healthy, there are those listening who think, yeah, yeah, I'm one of those healthy ones. You've not come for me. There are people who believe that they don't need a savior, that they don't need a healer. We're all right. We're self-sufficient. I'm not one of those who needs Jesus. But in biblical terms, we are all sick. We are all unhealthy. There's no one, not one of us in this room who are righteous. Not one of us can say, yes, I am healthy. But there are many people, even in our church, who believe actually they are quite healthy, really. You know, I don't really have many needs. I'm actually doing all right. You know, you know, I might even count as righteous some days. I'm certainly not as bad as whoever I'm thinking of. Jesus tells us we are all sick with sin. We are all broken we are all in need of a Savior. And he's not come to call the self-righteous. He's come to call the sinner. And boy, Matthew was a great example of that. And I'll tell you somebody else who's a great example of that. Jared Charles. Philip Plimming. Mike Barton. Fill your own name in. Every single one of us is a great example of a wicked sinner. We have nothing, friends, to commend ourselves to Jesus. We have nothing to plead before him. We are all in need of a healer, of a savior. But you know, for me, the tragedy is, 
no matter how often or how much I hear of the grace and the love of God for me, there are days I'm not sure I fully believe it. I'm not sure I've really internalized it. If you were able to see deep inside me, you'd, you'd see someone who's often struggling to perform as a Christian. And it's so difficult sometimes getting the chance to preach because there's an aspect of performance takes place and you don't feel very true to who you really are. As if I'm, I'm portraying this wonderful Christian man where deep inside I'm a broken, wounded sinner in need of the grace of God. So many of us feel we have to put up a front and save face and behave in the right way. But who we are on our own, that's who we are before God. Not who we are in this lovely public uh, social setting. Who we are on our own, that's who we are before God. But you know, so many still think that we've got to behave a certain way so that Jesus will love us. Well, we might articulate it that way, but deep down inside us, there's still this religious person trying to earn God's love. Whereas Jesus comes and says, follow me. I offer this to you freely. This is grace. This is complete love. Jesus looks at me as he looks at you and he says, I know you completely. I know your past. I know all that mess. I know that secret that you don't want anybody else to know. I know you. All your fears, all your insecurities, all your present sin, I know you and I choose you. I invite you. Follow me. Whatever it is in your past, or your present, Jesus invites you to follow him. No one ignored. No one passed over. No one rejected. No one beyond the invitation. There's no sin too severe that can't be forgiven. There's no past so messy that Jesus is going to reject you. Nothing can exclude you from this invitation of the gracious, loving Savior. He calls the sick and the sinner. He calls you today. Follow me. Look at Matthew's response to this call. Matthew does three things, and I think we're all called to do the same. Matthew does three things in response. The first, like Matthew, we have to get up from where we are, and follow Jesus. Matthew gets up and follows. Jesus meets us exactly where we are, but he loves us too much to leave us as we are. The journey of following Jesus is a process of having your past and your present forgiven, restored, seeing the dark, secret corners of your life that you would like to forget about, seeing his light shine in those corners, illuminate them, and bring a healing and a restoration that all of us in our brokenness need. This is the process of opening oneself up 
to Jesus, to see your very self transformed by the presence of God living in you, working in you by His Spirit. That is salvation. But we have to get up and follow. It's all very well for Matthew to sit there and say, oh, it's great, Jesus invites me to follow Him. I'll really think about that when I get time. I really will think about doing that. You know, maybe if I can just leave this job and find another job first, then I'll follow him. Maybe there's things I could do first, and then I'll be ready to follow him. No, Jesus has no preconditions. Get up and follow me, he says. And that's exactly what Matthew did. He got up, and he followed, and his life was transformed. And he ended up being one of the gospel writers. We hear the good news about Jesus. Many of us have heard it again and again and again. We hear the call of Jesus. We may well have fully understood the purpose of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. But somehow, some of us have just stayed seated. Have not got up and followed. Not committed ourselves to follow him. Matthew got up. And Matthew followed. The second thing Matthew did. In order to follow Jesus, like Matthew, we need to leave the past behind. And all these things sound so simple to say. But so many people, myself included in this, in following Jesus and in recognizing his forgiveness of me, fail to leave the past behind. And fail, I think, to forgive ourselves. To accept that we made a mess and Jesus has forgiven us, but we don't forgive ourselves. And I've struggled with this for a long time. We may come to Jesus in repentance and experience his forgiveness, but we don't forgive ourselves. And I'm constantly beating myself up about how bad I am and how often I still do this sin and I've 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 repented of this sin so many times and I still do it and aren't I awful? I've got a low opinion of myself. I have no compassion on myself. I'm harder on myself than on anybody else because I haven't fully forgiven Jared. Maybe that's your experience too. And if that is the case, you're in grave danger of going into the area of self-hatred, which is a destructive place to be. Jesus loves you. He loves you. And he would like you also to love yourself, to have compassion on yourself, to give yourself a break, to be kind to yourself. When Jesus quotes Hosea in this passage and says, go and learn what this means, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. He's referring to how much more pleasing it is to God to be compassionate to people than to offer him endless sacrifices. And I think we also need to apply this to being compassionate on ourselves. Demonstrate some self-compassion and be gentle with ourselves. We hear a critical voice in our head. I don't know if you do. A critical voice in our head constantly. Sometimes it sounds a bit like my dad. Sometimes it might sound like any other voice of authority. But it criticizes everything I do. And I'm hard and down on myself. And I do not believe that that critical voice is the voice 
of Jesus. Let us be compassionate on ourselves. Jesus didn't spend all his time constantly reminding Matthew of his former complicity with the Romans and all that greed and theft and extortion he'd been involved with. Perhaps Matthew was reminding himself. But when Jesus forgave Matthew, he held nothing against him. May we also experience this deep compassion of our gentle Savior and learn to have compassion on ourselves. Finally, what else did Matthew do? Well, the third thing Matthew did was to immediately go and share Jesus with his friends, even if his friends were quite an embarrassing bunch to introduce Jesus to. Just like Andrew, when he met Jesus, went and told Simon Peter, and Philip immediately went and told Nathaniel, the response to knowing Jesus in the New Testament is most often to go and introduce him to your family. To introduce him to your family. Can you imagine anything more scary than that if you're from a non-Christian family? What does it look like for us? How active are we in passing on to others who don't know Jesus what we have received? Well, again, we can be very hard on ourselves about this. And we can also think, well, I've got to really learn a bit more before I start telling others about him. And I've really got to have everything tied up before I start talking about Jesus. Because what happens if they ask me a question that I don't know the answer to? What happened with Matthew? Matthew brought Jesus straight into a party with other tax collectors and sinners. And Jesus was in his element there. He loved being there. For you, then, you who know Jesus or are getting to know Jesus, how much of what you receive are you giving to others, your closest friends who aren't Christians, your closest family who aren't Christians, your work colleagues who don't know him. Are you doing anything about that? I suggested, I think, here before, a really good discipline is to write down five names, five names of the people closest to you who don't know Jesus, and commit yourself to pray for them each day, each day. It doesn't have to be a long, fancy prayer. Just lift those people before the Lord and ask Him for an opportunity. And watch Him amaze you by opening a door to speak of Him to the people you think are the least likely to respond. No one was ever less likely to be chosen by Jesus than Matthew. Matthew had never experienced that kind of compassion. The mercy that Jesus shows him is incredible. And he's shown us that same mercy and compassion. And he will show that mercy and compassion to the most difficult people on your list. People that you think, that person would never listen to me. That person would mock me mercilessly. That person could never be a Christian. I was that person when I was 20. One of the least likely people you could imagine coming to know Jesus. What looks impossible to us is possible to God. It's possible to God. So write those names down and pray for them. If you don't manage daily, pray for them as often as you remember to. We are all sick and sinners. We are all unworthy of following Jesus. And it's only when the divine doctor heals, only when the great Savior saves that any one of us can be counted worthy in Christ.
Will that be you today? Will that be some of those people on your list today? The only person's specification that you need is to recognize yourself as sick and a sinner. And Jesus says, get up. Be forgiven. Be healed. Follow me. Leave your past behind. And come. Come and fish for more followers with me.